Ballistic Chronicles. Welcome back to Ballistic Chronicles. This is Gary Lewis. I'm your host, and this is where we talk rifles and ammunition, ballistics, big game hunting around the West and around the world. We talk varmint hunting, and we do conversations with the people we meet along the way. Hey, today we're going to go back to a conversation I had with John Howell, NFL star, Super Bowl champion, played for Tampa Bay and the Seattle Seahawks, and fifth generation on the land in Nebraska and we were hunting bison. So that's the, that's the setting for this conversation. Hey, we're coming up on father's day and a great gift for father's day is Bob Nosler born ballistic. The book born ballistic is the story we tell about the second phase of the Nosler company and this continuing story, it's inspiring. It's a great gift for Father's Day. Born Ballistic, Bob Nosler, Born Ballistic. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it on GaryLewisOutdoors.com. You can get it at Nosler.com. Go to Nosler.com and get that book. Also, other good gift idea for Father's Day, Fishing Mount Hood Country. It's this book that I wrote with Robert H. Campbell. We tell tales of water, trails, trout, steelhead, and salmon. The book's divided into two sections, western and eastern, by the Pacific Crest Trail. 40 chapters, 15 rivers and creeks, and 30 still waters. It's a great book. It's a great book for somebody who lives in the Portland area, fishes around the Portland area, fishes in the Mount Hood region, all that water that comes off of Mount Hood. That's fishing Mount Hood country. Top seller for us is the Fishing Central Oregon book and and another great choice for Father's Day, the Fishing Central Oregon book. Hey, enjoy this episode. Hey guys, you are listening to Ballistic Chronicles. If you like the Ballistic Chronicles, tell your friends and check back here for the next episode. You can find Gary Lewis on Instagram at at the rate Gary Lewis Outdoors. And now here's Ballistic Chronicles. We're here at the Dismal River Club in Nebraska, in the sand hills of Nebraska. And we're hunting bison on this trip. And we have with us the director of operations. Well, we have with us the director of outdoor recreation for the Dismal River Club. His name is John Howell. He's been an outfitter and hunting consultant for the last 20 years. And he's a retired Super Bowl champion. He played for Tampa Bay and the Seattle Seahawks. So anyway, thanks for being here on Ballistic Chronicles. John, and thanks for showing us around this place. How long is your, how long is your family owned property here? Yeah. Well, first of all, Gary, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you the last few days and getting to know you. Um, we're honored to have you guys here. It's 
a very special place to me. Obviously, this is where I was born and raised. Uh, my family's been here in the Sand Hills on this ranch for five generations now. Um, so um, I don't currently live here, but I come back here as much as I, I possibly can. This is where I run my business. And, um, you know, this is where I create and build relationships with lots of cool people and one of my favorite places in the world. Well, it's great to share it with you. And one of the things you told me is that if there's a rock out here in the sand hills, it was brought here by somebody. Yep. And that, that comes right down to the, the gravel on the road. And you showed me yesterday a really special thing you found. Now, tell us about how you found it. Yeah, absolutely. We joke around here. If, if you find a rock, yeah, somebody carried it here. Um, and uh, the, the story about that is one day, uh, myself and one of my guides, we were um, we were guiding buffalo hunters um, along the Dismal River in the sand hills here on our uh, family ranch property. We just got done taking a really nice bull, and um, my guide and I were walking back to the truck, and um, we were coming through a, a buffalo waller, and it was about the size of our truck with those with those buffalo wild uh, waller, and it creates kind of a miniature blowout. And we were right down in the middle of it. And about half buried in the sand, it looked like a broken buffalo horn. Um, and I walked up to it and I kicked it and it was hard as a rock and it kind of made a thump. And we both looked at each other like, that's weird. I reached down and kind of just picked it up out of the ground. And what it was, was it was the, the head of a club made by Native Americans um, that you, you could see one end was... Uh, blunt. The other end was spherical, kind of a pointed end, but it was really heavy. And in the middle, um, it was ground out to where they had tied it onto a handle with a piece of leather. Um, and it was really heavy. I don't think it was used for battle or anything like that. In my opinion, it was, and I've been told by by others that um, that they you would use those to break bones on uh, you know buffalo to get the bone marrow out. Um, so the bone marrow was vital to their way of life and if if these were lakota or blackfeet or cheyenne in that were hunting in this area from time to time they would have had to crack those bones open to get at that marrow which they'd make soup out of and do other things with but if you don't have any other rocks, you got to bring a big hammer to the game. And when I looked at that thing, that's what I thought. This is a big hammer. And it's not me making a pronouncement on it. I'm basically, I'm getting that from you because, but there's no other rock there to bash it on. You know, you like to have two hard surfaces. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm going to crack that, I'll put it on a rock or an anvil or something and I'll crack it. I don't need as big a hammer, but they were... You bring that, and you think about when you're bringing tools like that, you got to carry them a long way. And what was that, five pounds? Yeah, it's probably, if I had to guess, five, six pounds. It's heavy. Um, it's extremely heavy. And and even when we find flint here and we find arrowheads, which you know we do quite often, um, you know that they had to trade for that flint, right? Yeah. With, um, with other tribes from different areas. Um, it's it in order to get that for the tools that they needed to to hunt and um everything else but um they either had to to bring it in here or trade for it um because that type of material just isn't in this country it's the great american desert it's the second largest sand dune formation uh behind the sahara desert and uh it's just a lot of sand yes it is a lot of sand so what we're what we've been doing these last few days is 
hunting bison. You're fifth generation on the land here. You've got some interesting family stories. But for the last how many years you've owned a herd of bison? 25 years. 25 years. And so these bison have been on your family's property for that long. And what was really exciting to me was being out there and seeing these buffalo wallows and the places where they walk, the trails that they walk over and over again. And we got it strikes me that the way that we were hunting these last few days is the way that they hunted in the 1870s and and into the 1880s. Yeah, that's what I really enjoy about this country the most is it's just, um, it's so open. There's no buildings. There's no street lights anywhere. We're 70 miles from a town that's over 500 people. The closest town is 450 people, and it's still 20 miles away. It really is the middle of nowhere, and the landscape and the terrain is exactly how it was, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago when these buffalo were roaming freely. And so it just takes me back in time when we're on the hunt, and, um, you know, just, I love being feeling like, you know, you're part of our, our country's heritage and the iconic American bison and um, the Native American Indians that uh, those bison meant so much to food and shelter and clothing. And it does. It just it just takes me back in time every single hunt I'm on. And I I love that we are able to have those animals on our family property um, and in an environment that uh, is not really any different than what they had. 200 years ago, we don't do any supplemental feeding. We don't, there's no hormones or vaccinations. We don't round them up. Um, They're out there free and natural. The water that they drink is from the spring fed dismal river. There's no man-made irrigation or wells. Um, And so they exist just like they did um, 200 years ago when there was, you know, 60 million of them out here. We were crawling through the sand and then down on our bellies, slithering along and man, I love that stuff. I, I love it when I get up at the end of a hunt and I've got sand in my pockets. Absolutely. I do too, Gary. I, that's the kind of hunting I enjoy the most. And that's kind of a misconception. I think people associate, you know, bison with when they drive through Yellowstone Park, maybe, and you can drive right up to them and um, maybe other conservation areas where they, where they have, where they have bison. Um, but these, these here have been haunted um, and then they've grown up out there. They're born and raised and uh, it's a self-sustaining herd that for the past 25 years, um, but they understand that two leggers mean danger. And um, uh, this made it very difficult uh, to hunt them. It's very challenging it's a different type of hunt that you and I have talked about. It's different than a whitetail or an elk hunt and things like that. It's got its own challenges and its own way that are unique. And that's part of what makes it so fun. The hides on these animals are amazing. When you put that animal on the ground, you can run your fingers through the hair. That first one that we got on Tuesday, just rich, rich hide. And the you know it makes a great trophy mount, but also the the rug and what the Lakota would have done, or the Ogallala, or the Bruley, or whoever was out here hunting, they would have tanned a hide like this with 
the hair off, and it would take 18 of those cowhides, of those medium-sized average cowhides, to make a teepee. And you think about how heavy that was and why they existed as a community because they needed some people to carry those big heavy pounders. They needed some people to make arrows and bows and they needed some people to haul the haul the lodges everybody had their own job to do in in that community yeah absolutely and it's been fun listening to you talk about them i mean the your knowledge of them and your respect for them um and your passion for that animal and just wildlife and their existence has been so cool and i learned that from you 18 hides um to build a lodge for them it's it's an um, that's an amazing thing to know it's super cool but the amount of work that went into it you know with with primitive tools um it did it required a lot of a lot of people um and and an entire tribe to make that work but yeah that you mentioned the trophy aspect of it Um, one of the things about buffalo hunting is that i enjoy so much is number one the meat i mean everybody loves meat from an elk hunt or a moose hunt or whatever it is but it seems like it's even cherished more from a buffalo hunt um just the the nutrition um you know compared to beef and um the flavor and everything you get it's it's the meat is just as much a part of the trophy for most of our clientele but then the trophy side of it as well you can have a great shoulder mount with a nice 25 square foot backskin rug still even after you do the shoulder mount and you can even do a european skull mount as well with a full rug so there's lots of cool trophy options and i've been in a lot of amazing trophy rooms in my life um and in a lot of them that i go into where there is a buffalo big old shoulder mount that's what stands up <laughs> that's for sure so when in the 1880s when it really looked like the buffalo the wild bison was going to be extinct in north america there were a lot of forces that were competing for those last animals and so there were people like pete dupree who caught five calves and took them home and and raised them and the ones that survived became the nucleus of a herd that is uh, probably living in Colorado somewhere. And then there was Samuel Walking Coyote, who was a flathead Indian. He saved some animals and then sold them to Michel Pablo and Charles Allard. And then there was Charlie Goodnight down in Texas who was doing the same thing. And these were small herds and it was mostly cattlemen who felt a responsibility to preserve something and so it wasn't it wasn't just the white man preserving them it was indians preserving them too and and then there would be things that would go wrong like disease and so there were private herds and then later the states got involved because in some cases they were shamed into keeping these animals alive there and there were forces in government who wanted them all extinct so that they would deprive the indians the native americans of of something to eat and but i look at you in this category as people that are stewards of the herds today and i love just seeing what you're doing with them and there's there's other people like you around the country who this means something to them and it 
is a labor of love. It's a force. You could be doing something else to make a living. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And yeah, I, I remind myself of that sometimes with these, you know, 15, 16 hour days, right? Um, but uh, but I, I love it. There's nothing else I would I would rather be doing. Um, I just I can just sit and watch those animals. To me, they're amazing. And and the story you told to me, it's the it's the greatest wildlife conservation story of all time. Oh man, I you can't you can't find a better one right. left on our continent. Right. So now a lot of people when they think about coming out here and sharing that hunt with you and with their family, that then they start thinking about the rifle they're gonna bring or the handgun or the bow and arrow and what is it that you like to see people put in the truck and bring out here? I tell you what, whatever, I tell people the largest caliber rifle that they shoot the very best. Um, because, uh, you know, like any responsible hunter, we want clean, efficient, one-shot kills on, on any animal. But, uh, but with the largest land animal in North America, um, we have to focus on that even more. Um, and so the largest caliber that they shoot comfortably, I'd rather have somebody bring, you know, a 30 six, um, that they shoot very well versus a three, seven, five H and H Magnum that they flinch and, and, um, don't shoot well, uh, because it is all about shot placement. They're big, big, tough animals. Um, inevitably everybody, leans towards the 4570 right I, and i brought a 4570 on this trip which was um outfitted quite a bit like the one that you carry as a backup yeah absolutely very very similar guns it's an 1895 marlin guide gun with a ported barrel and 4570 and um it's it's um it's compact it's uh, easy to handle um it's uh, quick target acquisition um and that's what i carry for a backup on on all of our hunts and i've had to use it before um but close range very good knockdown power um my guides joke with me around here um they because we do have a lot of people bring 4570s, and it's not so much the caliber. It's just the inefficiencies with some of the shooters that we can get from time to time, and that's okay. That's part of it. But I joke around. I say I think over 150 years, Buffalo have developed an immunity to the 4570 caliber. <laughs> <laughs> when I heard you say that, I smiled because I knew exactly what you were talking about, and then it just became apparent yeah. while we were on the hunt. We we were able to get close to one herd of bedded bison that didn't know we were there. And we weren't very close. It was still a long ways. 200 yards. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yep. And I told you, you know, and you've hunted a lot. I've hunted a lot. And, and I've, I've hunted a lot of animals that we ended up taking that did not know we were there. Very seldom will we ever take a, a, a buffalo that isn't aware we're there. And there's several reasons. Number one, it's the train that we're hunting in and the lack of cover. They're a plains animal. And so they're they're in the plains, even though we've got a lot of tree cover and the deep cut river valley. They like to be up in the hills and, and, uh, and on the plains. And so there's not a lot of cover um, that presents a challenge. Um, but also it's a herd animal. And typically there's more than one animal, which means more sets of eyes, more sets of ears. And they're just, they're just so aware for a seemingly docile animal. Um, most all of them were laying there 
Um, and we did have some tree cover, which is unusual because they were in a break between a, a, a bunch of trees and then a river that we just happened to catch them at. But that was really special and cool for me because I got to watch them in an environment where they didn't know I was there. And that just doesn't happen very often. Then when they do know you're there, they get up and stand and look at you and they get nervous and they start to mill around. So shooting a buffalo isn't a problem, but shooting the right one that you're going after becomes very difficult. And then they walk away. I joke with the guys as well. I say, nothing, nothing moves fast. Nothing moves faster than a walking buffalo. You think they're one hill away and you get up there and they're three hills away. Um, so it, it's, it's fun. It's challenging. They're amazing animals. So we were being very selective and in that selectivity, we were looking for a trophy and we were looking for a good hide and we were looking for a dry cow and we were kind of changing the game and changing our standards as we went. And that's just the same as it used to be. There were times when the hunt when buffalo hunters would look for a big bull for specific reasons and then there were times when they would look for a calf and there were times when they were looking for a cow and the the quality of the meat might be better on that younger bison and the thing that it really comes down to is it's all hunting buffalo it's all the same and whatever animal you go home with that's the one you're happy with absolutely and when you hunt with hunters like that with guys that that understand you know that and 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 um respect that mentality um it's just so it's just such a breath of fresh air when you know I've been in the hunting industry for a long, long time, and so much of the emphasis on so so much of of the game that I I guide for is how big is it? You know, what's it going to score? What's it going to measure? And nobody got out of tape measure on nope, this hunt. Nope, not one single person. <laughs> not one single person. It was about so much more than you know a, a trophy. Every animal out there was a trophy with this group of people. It's like a spiritual experience. It is. That's a very good way to put it. It is. It's, it is a spiritual experience. Hey, guys. We have two really good coffees at GaryLewisOutdoors.com. There's the Frontier Roast, which is a medium dark, and then we have the Fishing Central Oregon Reserve Roast, which is a blend of Colombian and Sumatran and Panamanian, which gives it that crema on top. You're going to love these coffees. And I've got Don Grissette on the line. We only use select uh, or what they call grade one coffees. Uh, at Expedition Joe, because, you know, we, we just don't want to mess with the other stuff. Uh, Starbucks and all these other big chain type organizations are buying probably in their best grades, they might be buying grade two, you know, so it goes from grade one to grade five. And and it has, there's a lot of things in the grading scales that determine what level it's going to be at. You know, they do what they call it, they use a screen. And so when you pour the coffee through the screen, 
there's only a certain percentage of the coffee beans that can actually go through the screen to be called a select grade or a grade one coffee. We wanted to make sure that, you know, everything that we're providing out there is going to get a five-star rating, to be honest, because we are primarily an internet-based company, you know, putting out a pretty darn good cup of coffee. As you know, smooth is the word. Your coffees are really great. Are you using your uh, your your fishing Central Oregon coffee as a potential espresso? Have you been making yeah. any espressos yeah. with it? Yeah, every yeah. single day, every yeah. single yeah. day, and that's what I'm sipping on right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. The uh, that makes while it makes a fantastic classic pot of coffee uh, in your drip machine or your French press or whatever your your method of making your coffee. Yeah, it's. It's an awesome, uh, it's an, it's, it's the best. I, I've never had a, another cup of espresso that can beat that yet. And so yeah. that one, that one's interesting because it, it has a little bit of, it's a blend. It has a little bit of a Colombian, some Sumatran coffee in there as well, because of the flavor you get from Sumatran. Mm-hmm. And then what makes the crema, which is that nice uh, layer on the top after you pull the, yes. pull your shot yeah. is from the Panamanian. So oh. uh, most people don't think of Panama when they think of coffee, but again, it's got a lot of high mountainous regions as well. And so you get you get a really nice uh, crema from that Panamanian. That's sort of the, uh, you put those three together, it's really hard to beat. On your website, we have a direct link that comes right. to the back end of our website. GaryLewis.com. Yeah, that just allows them to uh, make a real simple. Uh, you get come to a basically a Gary Lewis page, and it, it's got a year two coffees, and hopefully we'll be talking a third one here in the in the near future. You can find our coffees at GaryLewisOutdoors.com. <laughs>